We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. All right, we're going to be in uh, Psalm chapter 11 tonight, please. 11 and 12. Psalm 11. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Psalm 12. To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help. Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is the Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety from which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation Forever, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Thank you, Drew, for reading that. Good evening. I invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 3 this evening. Ezra chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off last week. The setting of Ezra is interesting as I've been reading it. Just uh, 
imagining what it would be like to return to a land uh, that looked different than when you first left it. For some, they had not seen it before. Perhaps they were born in Babylon, and they were returning for the first time, only heard stories of what it was like to live in the land of Israel, never having really experienced what it looked like to live in God's covenant community gathered together as a people worshiping in the temple yearly and and also throughout the year. And now they have an opportunity to do that once again. And we see here in Ezra chapter 3 how they begin this endeavor to reestablish or reinstitute the worship of Yahweh in the land of Israel and particularly in the city of Jerusalem, God's chosen place for his people to gather and to worship. And so as I looked at Ezra chapter 3 and I studied through it, I came to the conclusion that Ezra's purpose in giving an account of this kind of period of time in Israel's history is to teach us how Israel will respond when met with opposition. And we see that kind of theme, not just in Ezra 3, but really all throughout Ezra 3 into chapter 4 and even chapter 5 and chapter 6 as they begin with the building, the rebuilding of the altar, the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. How will Israel respond to opposition? And I think what Ezra is doing is he's, he's showing us what the people of Israel are like now versus how they responded to opposition in the kind of pre-exilic community. And I'm maybe getting a little bit ahead of myself, but let's just realize that before they were deported, when met with opposition, Israel often caved to that, uh, to that opposition out of fear of man. Rather than fearing the Lord and obeying his word and trusting in the Lord, saying no matter what, we're going to do what's right. We're going to obey God's word. And so I think Ezra is kind of contrasting now these two communities, the community of the the pre-exilic time of Israel versus this remnant that has returned and how they respond to opposition. And so I think the truth that Ezra is teaching us is this, that Israel demonstrates trust in the Lord by obeying his word despite opposition. And this isn't going to be true the whole time. There are times where perhaps we'll say their faith is shaken, and so building stops for a time. But at least at the beginning, for a time, there is trust in the Lord, despite the opposition. So I ask that you give attention now to God's word as we read Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Ezra records here in verse 1, And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, that is, each their own city throughout the land of Israel, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept 
the Feast of, the, of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and, all, and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8, Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God, at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren and the priests and the Levites and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel, with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their, in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, Praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But as many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Before we look into this text this evening, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help in us this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help for us to understand what you have for us to learn from this text. Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us, that exhorts us, that admonishes us, Lord, and at times positively sets example uh, from the example of your people of what it looks like to trust you and to obey you. Help us to follow that example as we see here in the text this evening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As I said at the beginning, the question, maybe the underlying question we could say of this text is, how will Israel respond when met with opposition? We see in the first six and a half verses that Israel rebuilds the altar despite opposition. And that's kind of the first way or the first means of demonstrating that they are trusting in the Lord. They rebuild the altar despite Opposition And really, I believe verse 3 is kind of the center of this passage, although it doesn't center chronologically in the chapter. It is the center of the passage. Let me just 
uh, read it again. It says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. Some texts say even though or because. I think even though is probably better clarifies what Ezra is saying here. Even though there was opposition and there was fear, they still set the altar on its bases. They still rebuilt the altar. And so, again, even though it's not chronologically centered, you know, in the middle of this passage, I believe it is kind of the central point, the pinnacle of this passage, that despite fear and opposition, they trusted the Lord by obeying his word. Beginning with verse 1, though, we see that all Israel gathered, it says, Ezra writes, as one man to Jerusalem in the seventh month, the month called Tishri, which uh, would have been sometime actually around this time of the year, September or October. Of course, this happened in the year 537. So if you remember, if you were here at the beginning of our study of Ezra and some of the introduction Material. We said that the decree of Cyrus that's written, or that we see written, recorded here in Ezra 1, was written in the year 538. And so some months have passed, perhaps almost a year. It took them a while to get themselves together, to get the provisions for the travel. Remember, we said it was about, I think, a 900-mile uh, traverse. And so probably four months or so to travel with that large of a community, children, elderly, And so many months had passed. Now they had settled somewhat into their cities, but now the seventh month had come. And we'll mention in a moment why this month is so important to the Israelite community. But in light of that importance, we see that Israel gathers to Jerusalem as one man, Ezra writes. I think what Ezra is doing here, he's using this idea of one man to convey the fact that Israel was united as a people. They came up as one man with a common purpose to worship and obey God. Maybe in more kind of New Testament language, we could say it like Philippians 2.2 says it. They were of one mind. They were together worshiping the Lord, seeking to worship him together as his people. We see later on upon Ezra's arrival, which was some, somewhat much later in the timeline, uh, that all the people of Jerusalem once again gathered as one man. When Ezra arrives on the scene, we see this recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, although for this, at that time, it was for the hearing of God's word. That's not necessarily the case here in Ezra 3. They had a different purpose in mind for their gathering We see here in verse 1 that everyone gathered from and traveled from the Judean hill country up to Jerusalem. Much like we might recall from New Testament passages where the people gathered for Passover. They would come from their cities to gather to Jerusalem to celebrate that festival. Ezra then draws attention quickly to the purpose kind of of their gathering in verse 2, where we see that Jeshua, who's already come on the scene in chapter 2 as one of the main important leaders, remember he was named at the beginning of the list of the returnees, along with Zerubbabel, who was kind of the, the, uh, 
the man claimed by Israel to be their true governor. Although, if you remember, there was the man called Sheshbazar, who was kind of the political appointee by Cyrus to kind of lead the people back, but really it was Zerubbabel who the people of Israel recognized as their true leader. And I think for good reason, which we'll see here in the text here this evening. So Ezra draws attention to Jeshua, who was the high priest at this time, along with Zerubbabel as two individuals who exemplify leadership by initiating rebuilding the rebuilding of the altar. It says in verse 2, Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Jeshua and Zerubbabel's example of leadership is ab, uh, admirable, and I think it echoes the leadership of some of their forefathers, like Moses, who is actually mentioned in verse 2 as a man of God. Not only Moses demonstrated good and godly leadership prior to Jeshua and Zerubbabel, but also other men like Joshua and Caleb. Remember, they also were faced with op- opposition. Or perhaps in Joshua and Caleb's instance, they were faced with how do we deal with the giants in the land? Do we fear them and not go into the land? Well, that's what the people did. Rather, Joshua and Caleb were determined to fear God, trust the Lord. And I think Zerubbabel and Jeshua kind of echo that leadership of Joshua and Caleb. When faced with the decision of of whether or not we're going to fear God or we're going to fear man, they chose to fear the Lord. They chose to trust in the Lord. And for that reason, then, Israel needed such leaders like Zerubbabel and Jeshua at this critical kind of pivotal point in their reestablishment of the land. Kind of an application of this, you know, in today's age, in the church age, there are times when churches, it's a pivotal time where a church needs a good, strong leader. Perhaps, you know, the church is going through some disruption there's some, there's some schism, there's some uh, fear of other people in the church who are causing troubles, and it takes strong, godly servant leadership to unite the people and to lead them by the word of God to say, this is how we're going to respond to this obstacle. Perhaps even more poignantly is our time during COVID, where there's a, a chance to say, we're going to fear man. Or we're going we're gonna to fear pestilence. Or we're going to fear and trust the Lord. We're going to trust him through this. We're not going to capitulate to man's desires, what they'd want us to do, but we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to obey him. And that requires strong leadership. And that's what Zerubbabel and Jeshua exemplify here in this passage. In the midst of opposition, amidst an opportunity to capitulate or compromise and say, we're not going to build the altar, we're not going to build the temple, because, you know, perhaps people are going to come and they're going to destroy it again. They're going to try to stop us anyways. Instead, they decided to trust the Lord. 
Ezra states that the rebuilding that uh, rebuilding the altar was done for this purpose. What does he say in verse 2? The purpose of rebuilding the altar. To what? To offer sacrifices. To offer sacrifices, burnt offerings on it. The altar was an essential part of Israelite worship. Even before the tabernacle was built and later on the temple by Solomon, the first temple, altars were being built to worship the Lord. It's prob- probably so that, you know, remember Cain and Abel bringing an offering to the Lord? I don't think it actually mentions an altar, but we can assume that there was an altar built, an offering given to the Lord to worship him. Later on, we see Noah, remember, builds an altar to the Lord and worships him, as well as Abraham, and then Moses. And then later, David builds an altar on Mount Moriah in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 25. He builds an altar to worship the Lord. And that would actually later be the place where the temple would be built and an altar to the Lord would be built. And so altars were kind of a central part of the worship of Yahweh for the people of Israel. And even before Israel was established as a nation, God-fearing people were building altars to worship the Lord. The altar, however, in Jerusalem bore significance as God had chosen Jerusalem as the location for his people to worship him. Uh, look at Psalm 132, verse, thir- uh, Psalm 132, verse 13. I can get there. Uh, beginning in... Uh, Beginning in verse 13, it says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have uh, desired it. Uh, Also, uh, you don't have to turn there, but uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 1, it says, uh, This is in the context of David preparing to build the temple. In verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 22, it says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And so uh, David recognizes this altar as the altar to the Lord, used for the purpose of burnt offerings for God to worship him. Uh, also in Second Chronicles chapter six, just turn there and read that to you. Chapter six, verses five and six. Let me begin in verse three. It says, "Then the king turned around, this is Solomon, and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing, and he said, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands." What he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I have brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, nor did I choose any man to be ruler over my people Israel. 
Yet, verse 6 says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. And so God had chosen a place, though not originally required, we might say. God had chosen to have his presence be kind of resembled or magnified in the city of Jerusalem as a place in which God dwelt among his people. So without the altar then, the people of Israel could not obey the law of Moses by offering the required sacrifices. If you're interested, you could at some point uh, go back to Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, and you could read of all the offerings that were offered on, uh, on the altar, established and prescribed by the law of Moses. Interesting uh, to read through those. But uh, for sake of time this evening, we won't. But reiterating then the fact that this altar was not just, you know, one altar out of many. It held significance as the place where God dwelt in the temple there. Of course, the temple not having yet been built again. But it was the place established and prescribed by God for the people of Israel to worship him. Notice uh, at the end of Verse 2, it says, to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In the eyes of God's people, the law of Moses was their authority. It was God's authoritative word to them, and therefore they were, they were um, required to keep it as it was prescribed. And so because of its authority, they were careful to do everything exactly as was prescribed in the law of Moses. This is a common theme throughout the book of Ezra, that the people did things according to the law of Moses. It was, it was prominent, it was important to them, it was significant to them that they would keep the law of Moses as it was prescribed. We see, uh, of course, here at the end of verse two, it talks about them doing things as it was written the law as it was written in the law of Moses. Um, it says also in verse four, they also kept the feast of tabernacles as it is written. The implied, you know, what left out part of that is as it was written in the law of Moses, and so the people were being careful to follow God's word as their authority. Their behavior then, in this instance, to draw careful attention to the law, stands in stark contrast to the behavior of the pre-exilic nation of Israel, who were, who, uh, were brought out of the land, deported out of the land, as a punishment for their disobedience of the law. Their lack of attention to God's law was the reason for their deportation. And so it's, it's not hard to believe then that the people of Israel, having now returned, were going to take very careful attention to God's word, knowing that there were consequences if they were to disobey it. 
Now, having been given a second chance, as it were, the people were careful to do the things as God commanded them, wanting to be pleasing to the Lord, to worship him according to the prescribed way. As a way of application for us here in this day and age, you know, we're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ, the law of grace. We are to follow God's word, are we not? It is to be, it is our authority on which we stand and uh, by which we do the things we do. And so the way in which we conduct worship in the church today, therefore, is not, if I may say so, willy-nilly or half-baked, dedicated or, uh, you know, compromised by the opinions of the world or culture, nor anything else. The way in which we worship today is based on the authoritative word of God. We recognize no other form of worship as legitimate that is not in accordance with God's word. What we teach, how we conduct our services, how we conduct our lives, how we worship the Lord in services, how we assemble and why we assemble, are all governed by the authoritative word of God. To do anything else would be in disobedience to God's word and would be neglecting to worship him as he has prescribed. And so we give careful attention to God's word, just as the people of Israel gave very careful attention to the law of Moses to guide them in how they were to worship their Lord. This is, was especially important given the situation Israel was faced with at this time. As we noted already uh, a couple of times, Ezra tells us that they set the altar on its bases even though fear had come upon them, despite the fact that there was opposition. We're not given the specifics of what the people were doing that caused Israel to be afraid. That's left unwritten, unnoted, unrecorded. All we know that there all we know about the the details of it is that there were peoples of those countries, neighboring nations, neighboring you know, tribes of nations who are causing them to be fearful. We know uh, some of the surrounding countries were those like Ashdod and Samaria. Remember, uh, after the people of Israel, the northern nation, were deported, uh, the, that northern nation was, was kind of repopulated with foreign nations who inevitably brought in their own gods and worshipped their own gods and didn't worship the God of Israel, although they make a claim to, later on we'll see in Ezra, but they worshipped other gods and the surrounding nations were not necessarily friendly to them, even though they were kind of in a similar situation. You know, uh, you know Persia's ruling, they're kind of vassal states, yet there was still, you know, kind of dysfunction amongst those kind of vassal states like Judah. It seems that whatever reason or however they caused the fear in the people of Israel, it seems that reestablishment of a religious center 
that is Jerusalem, was perceived as a threat to these foreigners who were now residing in the land. And in an effort to dissuade them from rebuilding, they tried to instill fear in the hearts of the people. I, uh, when pastor was teaching this morning in Sunday school, uh, the uh, verses in Psalm 56, 3 and 4 were brought up. And maybe, I don't know if anyone here can quote them, what time I am afraid, I will trust in him, in the Lord. I thought that those verses were very poignant for our text this evening. What time I am afraid, what will I do? Compromise? Pretend I don't know the Lord? Deny him? No, I will trust in him. As I was kind of outlining the text, at first I had this kind of, this kind of uh, title, or not title, but kind of uh, point heading, which was this. Fear compelled Israel to rebuild the altar. And I kind of scratched my head and thought about that for a little bit. And I thought, you know what, I don't think, although that's what Ezra writes, that's not necessarily what he means. <laughs> don't take me to say, you know, there's some deeper meaning, but what I'm saying is that what Ezra is really trying to get at is, the, is this. There was initially fear, I think, but fear was quickly replaced with faith. And so it was actually faith that compelled them to rebuild the altar. What time I am afraid, yes, there's, fra- there's fear there. Okay, you know, heart, mind, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And so initially, yes, there, I think there was some fear out of, for whatever reason or out of whatever reason. But that fear was quickly replaced with faith. So in one sense, yes, this fear spurred them on to complete the project. But ultimately, fear of man wasn't what caused them to persist in the work. Implied is that this fear, as we said, quickly gave way to trust in the Lord. And this trust in the Lord was exemplified by the fact that they obeyed his word. That's what faith does, right? It works. It obeys. And so they exemplify this faith and trust in the Lord by obeying his word to the T, exactly as the law of Moses prescribed, by rebuilding the altar in order to offer burnt offerings. So then, as we said, it was actually faith. What, uh, faith is what caused them to persist in obedience to God's word, not actually fear. Again, as a way of application to our lives today, there can be times when we're afraid. And that can kind of initiate a number of responses. Am I going to worship the Lord as he prescribed? Or am I going to do it in some other way that I can kind of get around it so I can please man and still worship God? The New Testament teaches us that we cannot have two masters, can we? No. Either we're going to fear man or we're going to fear God. Fear of man never leads to obedience. In in contrast, faith does. So 
as we look at our lives and our situation, there is cause for fear. People don't like Christianity. Perhaps they want to persecute it. Perhaps they tell us we cannot meet, you shouldn't meet, you shouldn't worship the Lord in that way. You can't teach that. Are we going to fear the Lord? Or are we going to kind of compromise? Well, okay, we won't teach it. Or we'll just simply teach love. Forget God's justice. Forget God's righteousness. Leave certain things out that aren't as, you know, acceptable. But following the example of the nation of Israel, at least in this instance, we are encouraged by the author, by Ezra, to trust in the Lord and obey him to the T, exactly as God's word teaches, and to not compromise when faced with opposition, but rather practice faith and obedience to him and let fear give way to trust. Well, we see that Israel does exactly this, at least here in this moment, and they, they go on to rebuild the altar and offer sacrifices to the Lord on it. Having built the altar, they now were able to keep the morning and the evening sacrifices just like they were told to do back in Numbers chapter 28, verses 2 and 4. Now, going back then, just for a moment, um, to verse 1, it, we said uh, it was in the seventh month that they came. We said that this month was particularly significant in the Israelite uh, community and on, in the Israelite calendar because there were a number of festivals or feasts that took place during the seventh month, the month of Tishri, which is the setting for this account here. The Feast of Trumpets was celebrated, we know, on the first day of this month. Leviticus chapter 23 tells us this, and uh, we're also told here in uh, first, verse 6, it says, uh, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, uh, because it was on the first day that the Feast of the trumpets, the feast of the trumpets was celebrated. But also during this month, the seventh month, we know that the day of atonement was also observed on the tenth day of the month. Leviticus chapter 23, 27 to 32 has this commandment there, the, the prescribed uh, way of, of, of observing that day. And then finally, um, from the 15th through the 21st of the month, the Israelites celebrated the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And this day was a day to celebrate um, God's people being let go from Israel and going to the Promised Land. The rebuilding of the altar then marked the reinstitution of the whole kind of sacrificial system that was non-existent during the time of the exile. There was no altar. There, were, there was no uh, celebration of these feasts, at least as they were prescribed, because they weren't in Jerusalem. The altar wasn't rebuilt. And so whatever festivals or feasts that they celebrated in the exile, and maybe they did, they weren't exactly according to the prescribed way because they were not in Jerusalem. 
and the, the temple had not yet been rebuilt. So even in that sense then, although there were some aspects missing even in the sacrifices because the temple had not yet been laid or rebuilt, we do still see the reestablishment or reinstitution of the sacrificial system, at least as much as was possible without all the encroachments, we might say, or, you know, the temple and all of the things that uh, were done in the temple in worship to the Lord. However, I think it's notable that despite the fact that Ezra even says that the temple had not yet been rebuilt, this did not prohibit the people from offering sincere worship to the Lord out of their hearts. They had a desire and they worshiped the Lord. They rebuilt the altar, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord out of a sincere heart. And because of that, I think the Lord did accept that as sincere and glorifying worship of his name. So perhaps then Ezra's purpose was not necessarily to say that the temple hadn't yet been rebuilt in kind of a negative way, but really to say, to explain that true worship is possible even without the temple. Although perhaps not to its fullest extent, or not in every way possible, could they worship the Lord without the temple because of the prominent place it had in, in their worship of the Lord. The text goes on to uh, tell us more. The altar has been rebuilt despite opposition. Fear gives way to faith and trust in the Lord, and they obey God's word according to the prescribed manner. And now we see in verse, uh, in the end of verse 6, or beginning in verse 6, it says, From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid Verse 7 tells us they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And so having now the temple, or excuse me, the altar rebuilt, they move on to kind of the next phase of the building project. They are gathering materials, uh, from uh, Sidon, and, like logs from Lebanon, giving gifts to them in order to compensate for those materials. And remember, uh, back in Ezra 1, remember uh, people from Babylon were giving them gifts, silver and gold and other things. I think these are the things, part, or at least part of you know, the gifts that were given in Ezra 1 were used to pay uh, for the materials that would be used for the rebuilding of the temple. And so we see then God providentially providing for the people of Israel. It's hard to imagine having, you know, traveled all the way from Babylon to Israel, that these were, you know, kind of some rich folks at the time. And so very likely they relied upon the gifts that were given to them to pay for the materials. And this was done according to the permission from King Cyrus and that, is kind of hearkening back to the decree that Cyrus gave them, which uh, gave them permission to rebuild the temple. However, we might kind of put a, a caveat or kind of you know, a side note on that, that the ultimate authority came from the Lord, did it not? 
that God had given them a prescribed way in which they were to worship him. And so they were going to do that as God had prescribed. And so ultimately the permission or the authority to do this came from the Lord, although God used Cyrus in order to kind of uh, give them that opportunity and make these things accessible to them to rebuild the temple. In uh, verses 8 through 9, we really see just kind of uh, the fact that uh, there was supervisors for the temple rebuilding, and and this included Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. It's interesting, uh, for sake of time, we won't go there, but when the priesthood was established by God, the initial age, if I'm recalling right, for Levites to serve was the age 25. But during uh, David's reign, he actually lowered that age to, uh, to 20. Perhaps that's because there wasn't enough Levites at that time to work in the temple. And so David saw fit uh, to lower that age to allow them to serve. And so we see, um, we see that kind of being reflected here that those age 20 and over from the tribe of Levi Levi, would serve as overseers in the work of the house of the Lord. In this day and age, we might say 20. Man, that's still a baby. (laughs) You know, they're still young. But um, perhaps there was a higher level of maturity, or maybe we'll put it this way, there was an expectation of maturity to serve and in this case, to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And so for you young folks who are out there, maybe watching online, again, as a way of application, don't think of yourself as too young to serve the Lord. You know, in this case, we're talking about a building project, but maybe, maybe it's serving around God's house here, or the church, in some manner. Maybe it's simple. Uh, simple projects around the building to help with the maintenance. But perhaps it's serving the Lord by worshiping and using your gifts to play some music or to help in a class or help in the nursery. God is pleased when we serve him, even at that young age. We can be used mightily for him. And so do not discount that as a reason to not be serving the Lord. In verse 10, we see that Uh, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, there is uh, this kind of uh, significant response to this this kind of pivotal point, this prominent uh, kind of occasion for the people of Israel. Note that the whole temple hasn't been built at this time. It's just the foundation being laid. And I find that interesting. I probably could have done more research to figure out what exactly this would have looked like, you know, the foundation of the temple. It seems, given their response, that it was more than maybe, you know, kind of the first layer of bricks, if I can put it that way, around the base. I mean, that doesn't, that's not much for the eye to see. There's not really any significance to that. And so perhaps uh, not only was kind of uh, you know, the, the floor of the temple kind of rebuilt and resurfaced, but perhaps even some of the pillars uh, and, and timber was starting to be raised and so that there was kind of, you know, the framework of the temple coming into view. And the reason I say that is because of their response, which we'll look at in just a moment. 
I could be wrong about that. Maybe you know a little bit more about that, and I'd be happy to talk to you about that, what it, exactly it would have looked like. But here we see the, the wonderful response of God's people demonstrating that they are, they are enthusiastic about worshiping the Lord. They are excited about the reinstitution of the sacrificial system in the beginning stages of the temple being rebuilt. Verse 10 says, The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And so it's hearkening back to the first temple being built, wherein David, at kind of the, uh, uh, at the point of, um, of uh, beginning the temple worship, David calls the sons of Asaph to come and to sing praises to the Lord. And so we see this once again happening. It says in verse 11, we see the response. It says, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, singing these words, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. I think that truly came out of a heart of worship, that they had seen God's mercy endure. He had fulfilled his promises. The mercies of God were great before their eyes. Not just, you know, in the concrete image of the altar there, in the temple, uh, you know, the foundation being laid, but they saw God's providence through all of this. They saw God working behind the scenes to fulfill his word that he would cause them to return and for the temple to be rebuilt. And so in, in, in sincere hearts of worship, they lifted their voices and sang with their lips that God is good. We don't stand here today, you know, waiting for a temple to be built, but we can sing these words because we serve that same God, and we've seen his promises be fulfilled in the past, in the present, and he will fulfill his promises that are yet to come to pass in the future. And so we can sing along with them with confidence that God indeed is good and his mercies endure forever. We see then a kind of a divided response um, of emotion in the people here. It says, Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This elicited uh, shouts of praise. Yet at the same time, it also elicited a kind of negative or disheartened response by those who had seen the former temple built by David. It says in verse 12, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice, when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Remember, we said uh, only about 50 years had passed from the last deportation. And so, you know, there could have been men who were in their, you know, 70s or 80s who had seen the temple, David's temple in all of its glory, and then seen its destruction before they were deported 
out to, uh, out to uh, Babylon. And some of these men then, who had survived the exile, returned. And as they saw the foundation of the temple laid, they wept. It's not The specific reason isn't given here, but it seems implied that the reason is because it didn't, uh, it didn't compare in the glory of David's temple. And so that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I think that there had to be a little bit more to the framework of the foundation in order to make that kind of comparison. You see what I mean there? You know, if it was simply the kind of the first layer of bricks, you know, how, how could you really compare what the temple was going to look like uh, if there wasn't more structure to it? When I've read this text before, I've often kind of read it kind of feeling their emotion with them or sympathizing with them. However, I've maybe kind of uh, drawn back from that view a little bit. In this way, I think there's legitimate reason to, for them to kind of be disheartened. But at the same time, it seems that their focus at, their, at this point was more on comparing the building than recognizing the fact that they were able now to worship the Lord again. And it seems, so, seems that their kind of priorities were a little mis, uh, disoriented or misprioritized in that they were focusing more on the building than on the fact that they were now back in the land and able to worship the Lord as was prescribed in the law. And so for that reason, it seems that uh, perhaps Ezra's writing this in a little bit of a more negative light though we can, I think, sympathize with them to an extent. Finally, it says uh, in, the, in the middle of verse 12, yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the no- noise of weeping of the people. Imagine, you know, just the sound of that loud shout. I don't know how many uh, people were there, but we do know from the number, uh, the list, the total sum of the list that it was around, what, 42,000? Imagine that kind of gathering and the sound of shouting, of joy, the sound of weeping. You know, you probably couldn't even hear your own voice, much less discern which were uh, shouts of joy versus shouts of weeping or noise of weeping. Ezra has this kind of interesting uh, conclusion here to chapter 3. It says, for the people shouted, with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. I've always kind of wondered, you know, how afar off does Ezra mean, you know? Uh, perhaps there were, you know, neighboring tri- or neighboring uh, nations, you know, villages, towns, where they, where they heard the noise. I mean, 42,000 people echoing across the hillside of Judea so that the surrounding people heard this great commotion. Perhaps that's even some of the reason or kind of the initiation of some of the opposition we see uh, uh, throughout the rebuilding project as the people were, you know, noticed, okay, there's something happening. There's a great commotion. The people of Israel have returned and there is strength in their number. There is a unity of the people like we saw at the beginning of the chapter, and it seems to be reflected here at the end of the chapter as well, as they shouted together with one voice. 
So as we close this evening, I just encourage us to consider the example of Israel. It seems as that God, in a sense, is testing them from the very beginning. Will my people fear me, or will they fear the enemies around them? And in this case, Israel seemingly passes the test, demonstrating trust in the Lord by obeying his word, despite the fear and opposition that came their way. And so like them, like the nation of Israel, we must respond in times of fear by trusting the Lord. When, am I, when I am afraid, I will trust in him. Pray that we will do that even this week and throughout all our days as we gather to worship the Lord. May we trust in him and obey his word as it has been prescribed. Not compromising when it seems easy to do so or like there's no way out. Seems that Jesus faced some of those same temptations like Pastor talked about this morning. Yet there is a way of an escape of escape. We must trust the Lord not to capitulate. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close now, we thank you for your people who have gathered here this evening to hear your word. Lord, we thank you for the word of Ezra, which really is your word, as you superintended your word and revealed it uh, and used Ezra to record these words. Lord, may we learn from the lesson of Israel, God's people, who seemingly contrasted their kind of community in the time before the exile. And now as they return, they demonstrate a kind of courage and trust and faith in the Lord. Lord, may we follow in their example, trusting you in time of fear and not fear man. We ask for your help in this way. In Christ's name, amen.